Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You're listening to Stu's Wrestling Podcast on Northeast Streaming Sports. This is Kenzo Richards. You're watching Stu's Wrestling Podcast. You're listening to Stu's Wrestling Podcast. It's time for British Wrestling Sharpshooter, your host, Stu Palmer. We're back to the US of A this week on Stu's Wrestling Podcast, to Kentucky no less, and it's to speak to musician and the guy who collaborated with Jimmy Hart. He was actually in the band The Gentries with Jimmy Hart before the wrestler music came to be, Mr. Hurricane JJ Maguire. 100 themes created by JJ and Jimmy. We got to hear some of the best wrestling music ever. They were, they were the most iconic for me, and what a pleasure to get this man on. It was such an awesome afternoon speaking to him and really getting to know him and the creative process of making the tracks. They worked with Hulk Hogan exclusively when Hogan went over to WCW. JJ actually drove the Dodge Viper at the WCW parade for Hogan when he was unveiled. JJ also talks about his dealings with Vincent Mann, some great stories with Vince. And just to finish off in the intro, I'd like to plug his book as well, Hollywood, My Life in Heaventown. That is out, available across all good book stockers. You can get it on Amazon as well. So without further ado, my guest, Hurricane JJ Maguire for episode 73, all the way from Kentucky. Enjoy. My guest, all the way from Kentucky, it is Mr. Hurricane JJ Maguire. You will know a lot of his music in wrestling, in TV. He's had appearances in TV shows as well. So I am looking forward to this because I loved the intros and the music for different guys when I was growing up that you and Mr. Jimmy Hart produced. So yeah, man, I'd like to find out about the creative process firstly, making those songs and maybe some of the songs that are your favourites to make for the wrestlers. 
Yes. Uh, well, when we first started out, uh, Jimmy gave me a call. We were in the Gentry's course. We were a hit group called the Gentry. Yeah. And that's how Jimmy and I first met and everything. And uh, so one day after the Gentry stint through the uh, early to mid-70s, in the latter 70s, Jimmy, of course, hooked up with Jerry Lawler in the Mid-South. And actually, the first record we did was down there for Jerry. Uh, I took Breaking Up is Hard to Do by Neil Sadaka and made it a disco version. And Jerry sang it. Jimmy sang the lead line, and then he listened and minute, you know, sang along with him. Then we took Jimmy's voice off. The Lawler did a good job for a non-singer, and uh, that was in the late 70s. So then fast forward, uh, we, uh, we also did a song for Handsome Jimmy Valiant, the ballad mm -hmm. of Handsome Jimmy. And uh, so... Uh, that's where it all started, and uh, the way I got into Gentry's was pretty wild. Um, a manager that was booking a group from Kentucky that I was with also was booking the Gentry, and their drummer quit. And so uh, our booker uh, and manager called me and said, hey, JJ, um, a hit group called the Gentry. I said, no, I just saw them last year at Toys for Tots in Louisville, Kentucky with some of the greatest of all time, Andy Kim and the Hollander and the Raiders. You know, everybody was big during that era, during the 45 RPM era, you know. <laughs> and so uh, that's kind of, I saw the Gentries there. The group I played with, we had a regional hit record. You know, you used to have uh, regional hits that were as popular as the mainstream hits and with the 45 uh, releases. And so, uh, anyway, we played that show also at Freedom Hall in Louisville, Kentucky for, uh, I think it was like 12,000 people. It was maximum uh, wow. capacity at that time. Wow. And I saw the Gentries, though I was in another group, and I said to myself, wow, now, this is the group, kind of group, that I really would love to eventually play with. This is like my kind of stuff here. Well, in less than a year and a half later, I was in the Gentry. <laughs> I didn't know any of them other than through our uh, Booker agent, you know. And so when they got ready to need a drummer, uh, Joe Powers, our agent, uh, called me and said, uh, well, I'm sorry to hear that the group you were with in Kentucky broke up, but uh, Jimmy Hart, this guy named Jimmy Hart, I didn't know Jimmy Hart from Jimmy Smart. Uh, he's looking for a drummer for the Gentry. Now, you must understand, this was before uh, Jimmy got involved in wrestling or anything. Mm -hmm. yeah. The Gentries had had a multi-million seller with Keep On Dancing in 66. I joined in 71, and we had out, uh, we covered Cinnamon Girl by Neil Young. And we put it out on a single, and it's a top 40 hit worldwide. Well, then Neil saw it, and then he put it out on 45. But see, he had it out on the album to start with. But we had such good success. He, he ran in real quick, and then he, re he released it himself on 45. So we all had a good run on that, and uh, thanks a lot, Neil. Uh, you know, what can I say? But that's how I got into the Gentries, and I was up against uh, Jerry Lee Lewis's drummer and also one of Ray Charles's drummer. But those guys were more, uh, you know, rhythm and blues and rockabilly-type mm -hmm. drummers. They weren't hard rock drummers, and I was. I had a double bass drum set, and this was during a time where maybe John Bonham had double bass, maybe one or two other drummers in the industry actually had double bass drum. So uh, anyway, I went down, I told Jimmy, uh, the, our manager Joe said, call this number. I said, hi, Jimmy Hart. I'm JJ McGuire. He said, yeah, Joe told me about you. He said, um, but I just want to let you know who we're auditioning. We, they're already slated to do it. This is who you're up against. So I said, well, I'll tell you what, 
I'll come at my own expense. And if you don't want me, no hard feelings. Thanks for the opportunity. And you don't owe a dime. But if you take me, then you'll pay half my expenses and we'll go from there. He said, okay. And so that's how it all started. I threw my drums in the back of my uh, vehicle and drove to Memphis and wow. went to American Studios where Elvis got a lot of hits and stuff where they were having an audition, a closed audition. And uh, those guys, of course, went in first. We sat out in the hall and they were in the main studio room. So uh, one of them went in. Uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, the drummer, came in uh, went in. He was a real nice guy. They're both real nice guys, total pros, seasoned veterans, studio masters, the whole work. Okay, so then I was last. I was a little guy on the totem pole, no problem. So then I went in. They wished me well. I went in, and the demo song was Going Down by Don Nick. It's been covered by Jeff Beck and all sorts of art. So I was familiar with it. So I said, yeah, sounds good. And so they kicked it off. We got halfway through the song, and they stopped. And I thought, well, I scared them. You know, with the double bass drum, they've never seen that or heard that. They probably think that's too much. So I, I guess I've blown it. That's it for me. So they whispered amongst each other, Jimmy, and at that time his guitar player, Wes Stafford, who was uh, his partner, you know, writing partner, whatever. And so uh, Wes and he chatted a little bit under their breath. I couldn't hear it. So I figured, well, I, that's it for me. So uh, then Wes walked out into the hall and, uh, Jimmy stood there and said, you know, that double bass is really wild. I've never heard anything like that. And I said, well, I said, I hope I didn't scare you too bad with it. And then about that time, Wes came back in and they whispered to each other. And I, I got up and was taking my cymbals off the stand, you know. I figured, well, thanks a lot for the great audition. And they walk up to me and say, welcome to the Gentries, McGuire. <laughs> I about wow. fell over. Incredible, <laughs> man. Incredible. Yeah, really true. And uh, so we, the next day, we went to Florida, and we played a series of concerts. And then we went from that, though. We were hired by the Big Daddy's Corporation, who owned a series of premier bars right on the, the pier and the beach in Daytona and Miami and everywhere, East City. Uh, and uh, so we immediately – I had to play – uh, quite a few songs, but I was familiar with all their original material. And then they did a tribute to Van Morrison and a couple of other great artists within their uh, program as well for uh, any club dates. But the concert dates was just all the gentry stuff and the new stuff. And uh, ironically, you're going to love this one. Two bands that opened for us down there when I first went, we did a concert with, we were opened in front of by uh, Chicago, wow. and uh, also uh, a group that, of course, hardly anybody's ever heard of. Uh, Get your motor running. <laughs> That's right, Steppenwolf. They opened for the Gentries for us. Incredible. I mean, this whole thing is still till to this day is just like I can't. It's almost like a dream. I don't hope I never have to wake up from. Really. That's that's just keeps going. That's that's incredible. Like you say, how how humble you are about it as well. Because that that's just that's just incredible, JJ. Incredible. How how did it come about getting involved with Jimmy Hart doing the wrestling music? How did that process? How did the creative process begin for that one? Get getting that rocking and rolling. Well, we I played in the Gentry, so Jimmy knew me. You see. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah. He got with he got with uh, Jerry Lawler with Mid South, and when Jimmy got with the Lawler, uh, he was just selling merch out in, at the gimmick table out in the lobby. 
He wasn't a manager. All Jimmy knew about wrestling at that time uh, and myself was that we really enjoyed it. I mean, we, we weren't smart or anything. And so as I was walking down the hall when the, when the event was over at Rupp Arena in Lexington, uh, I was walking down uh, the hall with Jimmy and Jerry Waller. And um, Jerry looks over at Jimmy. I'm over here on the left side. Jimmy's in the middle. Waller's over on the right. And he says, uh, Jimmy, I came up with an idea today. And I'm just listening, standing there with him. He said, I think it's time that you become my ring manager. And now you'll love this one. I was standing right there. And Jimmy says, well, King, that sounds real cool, but how do you do that? <laughs> yeah, it's real, man. It's the truth. He became. So, <laughs> so, King, so, the, so the King says, I'll, I'll show you how. You just listen to me and we'll work it out. And I, and I told Jimmy in the car, I said, Jimmy, that sounds great, man. To, you're going from selling T-shirts and Lawler merch to actually being part of the action down there. Uh, fabulous. And he says, well, I guess he said, I, you know, I played football in high school. I'm pretty athletic, so uh, I'm not going to really become a wrestler, but he wants me to be a ring manager. I guess I can do that. So we all know where that went. And so then one day, here I am again at a pivotal moment. Uh, my life in heaven pound, just like the name of my plug plug book that's out that you can get wow. on Amazon. And uh, it's unbelievable. And so the phone, we're down at Jimmy's just working on some of our own music. We're uh, thinking about reconstructing the, another version of the Gentries and getting a record deal, and doing it again. And the phone rings on the wall, you know, this is poor cell phones and everything. And it's in the kitchen, one of those big kitchen phones. And Jimmy had about a, 45 foot curly cord on it where he could run around all through the house you know, and talk on it. And the phone rang and he didn't say anything. He went, hello. And he's listening. He's listening. And I'm standing right beside him in the kitchen. And okay. Okay, boys. Sure. He says, yeah, sure thing. All right. Yeah. I got the rib. See ya. Just hung up quick. I said, Jimmy, who was that? He said, oh, that's one of the boys trying to Pull a rib, you know, they said, this is Vince McMahon, and I'd like to talk to you, Jimmy, about something, and blah, blah, blah. He said, they try to pull that stuff all the time. Well, the phone rang again, just as soon as he said that. He picked it up. Hello? Well, it was Hillbilly Jim. And Hillbilly Jim says, Jimmy, Jimmy, don't hang up. It's me, Hillbilly. Well, he knew that was Hillbilly. Nobody could take that. And Hillbilly said, Jimmy, I showed all your Memphis tapes and stuff to uh, Vince, and he loves it. He wants to. He wants to talk to you here. Okay. And Jimmy just looked like a, you know, a deer in the headlight. And yes, sir. Yes, sir. Be glad to. Well, I appreciate that. Yes, sir. Thank you. I certainly will. Yes, sir. Well, thank you for calling me. You can count on that. Yes, sir. Thank you, Mister McMahon. Click. Well, what is it, Jimmy? What are we doing now? He says, Well, that's. WWF was wanting me to come up there. That was the big man wanting uh, said, the plane ticket be ready for me Monday. Uh, come on up. want to discuss uh, making a deal of some sort, joining WWF. And I said, great. And he said, but you know, McGuire, this could work out good for us on our music. And brother, it sure did. And that, that's how that all started. And then what happened was, is that they had, uh, Jim Johnson, you know, he's done some great works too and everything. I figured there's three ma true masters of wrestling ring music in my idea. And that would be uh, Jim Johnson, myself, and Jimmy Hart. You know, the three of us are pretty much, I believe, the pinnacle of whatever that's supposed to be. Now, 
this uh, CFO Money uh, bunch that did uh, a bunch of stuff here recently, but now they let them go because they just, they realize that it's cheaper for them to just essentially rent music, you know, to pay for a licensing fee, and you know, then nobody is ever going to make the money that Jimmy Hart and I did, and even uh, Jim Johnson as well, because we had a really sweet deal because we were in on the beginning of everything, and they were very gratuitous with us, whatever. And, you know, one thing a lot of people say, you know, they say they still got the first dime that they ever made. Well, I, you know, the first million that I made, I held on to, and right there it is. There's, there's <laughs> That's all. Look at that. Look at that right there. Uh, JJ, which which was the first song for WWF that you produced and put together? That's what I'd like to know. What Which song did you make first? When you, what was the first one you lay down? Sure. Uh, the, fir- the first song I did was uh, Super, Super, Super Fly. Wow. Uh, I did that at my, par- at my parents' house, um, upstairs in my bedroom, a 12 by 12 foot bedroom with my little, I had a reel to reel four track recorder. It was, a, it was a professional unit, but it's just four track. And, uh, I recorded that up there after dinner one night. I said, well, I'm going upstairs. Jimmy called me and said, uh, Jimmy Snooker's coming in, and he needs a theme. They don't have anything. Okay, let, well, I'll get on to it. So I finished dinner. And up, Mom and Dad, thank you. I'm going upstairs to write a legendary hit, I guess. <laughs> I didn't know at that time. I, you know, So I went up there and turned my stuff on and, and, uh, and took Spent about 45 minutes and did the track. And then my father came upstairs to see what I was doing. He says, Jimbo, you know, that thing's pretty good, those drums in there and stuff. But you know what? You got nothing unless you got brass on it. And I went, oh, okay. So then I put the trumpet part on that you hear on the front of it. Ah, da, da, da. You know, <laughs> that on the front. Yeah. And uh, I guess the rest is history. You know, that's where it started. What, one of my WWF, fa- that is. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to get on to WCW's all in a moment. My personal favorite, one of my favorite entrance themes ever, still to this day when I was a young kid when I first heard it, Demolition, who were a fantastic tad team in their own right. But the music, one of the most iconic entrance themes I've ever heard, for me, in my personal opinion, absolutely fantastic. And you, you put it together, man. Thank you so much for saying that. And- and I've heard that from a lot of the fans when I do the meet and greets and stuff across the country and whatever. Uh, I, I would think, well, the biggest theme that, that I wrote and Jimmy did the lyrics for, and I played all the instruments on, like most of the stuff, it's all me and he, uh, was Sexy Boy, of course. That's mm-hmm. the most played entrance theme in history of wrestling. Uh, but uh, Demolition, what, well, here's how it went. Uh, when they came in, Jimmy said, we got we got uh, Bill, uh, uh, Edie coming in and these guys. So who, what are they? I said, I know he's been about three different wrestlers, you know, Bill had. And, uh, he said, no, no masks here, but they got some really wild outfits made up for them that really look good. And he said, uh, but we need a heavy theme. Okay. Well, I'll get on it. Yes, sir. So got my guitar out and sat down and went, dun, 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 dun. Yeah. I guess I wrote it in about 15 minutes. Well, I wrote the whole thing. All right. So then uh, I uh, got on the plane like in the following week and went to one of the live shows in Cleveland or somewhere up there up north and took uh, some of the new stuff I was working on, you know, the tracks for Jimmy to hear and 
and him to do put words on or make suggestions or you know co-produce with me whatever and so uh i flew up to cleveland i believe it was and played it for him and he said mcguire here's what we need to do this is how smart jimmy hart is smartest guy in wrestling i'm telling you i think vince mcmahon at the pinnacle and then jimmy hart believe it or not he's helped more famous wrestlers that you've loved your whole life he helped them with their outfit gave them advice i mean He's really never got credit for nope. a lot of that, Abs- you know. Absolutely. Everybody thinks it's the big man and the big people in the sky there, but uh, Jimmy Hart was didn't get an extra five bucks or anything for helping those people with their outfits and so on, you know. I mean, and, I remember one story I just want to say to you, like when they, when they would send him out to go do stuff on his off days, I've, I've heard it many a time, he would go and do it with me and he'd, he'd take the old merchandise with him you know, for people less fortunate. And that's all That's all you have, ever hear about, Jimmy. All the extra stuff that, you know, he did it in his own time, didn't he? Well, Vince McMahon always said uh, to me and everybody else, he said, McGuire, Jimmy Hart is my greatest, my most hardworking employee. That's what Vince said directly to him. I was standing there and said it. But uh, anyway, so back to the demolition thing. Yeah, sorry. So Jimmy says, McGuire, McGuire, leave leave the bridge off, the two chords in the bridge where it goes, demolition, you ain't no magician. Got two chords there. He said, leave that out. I said, well, it's not a complete song without that. That makes sense. No, no. Here's how we work it. We send it without that, and we let Rick Derringer add those two chords, and we'll share a writer's credit with an icon. I said, sounds good to me. Let's take it out. <laughs> but I actually wrote all what you heard. But the, t- the regular place to go was the same two chords I originally had written. So by doing what Jimmy said, we did. We shared a writer's credit with Rick Derringer. You know, he just added two chords that I'd already written, actually. And, then, of course, he produced the album with David Wolf, Cindy Lauper's boyfriend yeah. at the time. And uh, they wanted us to do the whole album. They wanted Jimmy and me to construct the whole Piledriver album. But Vince came in and said, you know, told him, he said, we don't allow any one person to monopolize a whole project. So, you know, that album had three of our songs on it, and then Johnson had some songs, and then there were some other songs, too, by some other writers as well. So it was a haberdashery of different writers, but primarily uh, the three that we that I wrote and Jimmy wrote with me was Demolition, Honky Tonk Man theme, and Crank It Up. And uh, I wrote all the music for those, as usual, but pretty much everything, and then Jimmy makes whatever suggestions. Let's go with it. We had to work fast and quick. We didn't have time to sit around, and one guy tried to have a bigger ego and go, I want my idea on there. And, you know, we didn't write any of that stuff for our ego. We wrote the stuff for the world's ego. And when I was at Wembley at, at SummerSlam in 92, I mean, it was a reckoning for me. I mean, I knew what we were doing was it was the biggest entertainment platform in the world at that time bigger than nfl baseball and the truth be told we still hold the record for wembley and i'll tell you why they claim that football has it at like eighty seven thousand. but we actually had if you counted all the employees and everything else and people that had comp tickets and didn't have to go through a, a turnstile or whatever they estimated we had closer to 90,000, okay? So any, no matter how you figure it, we're still in the top of packing Wembley. Not even BTS packed Wembley. They didn't have as many as we did. 
I was oh. I was there. I was there that day, JJ, with, with my dad, six years old in the stands. I, I do you know what? I wish I was a bit older seeing that show. I appreciated it, but I, I always go back to this. I if if I'd have been a little bit older, it was incredible. It, what what a day! And you know, well, it dawned on me that uh, at Wembley is where it, it really hit me the scope of what we were doing and then how big that wrestling in WWF really was worldwide. And I went out, you know, I had full access to everything. I sat back with uh, uh, Vince and Pat Patterson and everybody right with them at a table and watched the monitors. And then you know, I had free reign of everything in, out, under, over, right with them, the whole thing. And so I, I stayed busy. I, I always observe everything that I do. I always watch and try to learn and still do. And, so I, I said, uh, boss, I'm going to go out and sit in the crowd for a while and get the feel, get the vibe of it all. And let me tell you something, Stewie. I went up, I sat down. I, of course, it takes you forever just to get around anywhere in the thing. It's so big. <laughs> but I went up, I sat kind of in the semi-nosebleed seats on the far end of, of Wembley. And I sat there and I looked beside me to my left and there was people sitting over here that barely had shoes on their feet. You could tell they'd saved their money all mm. year to come to this. Event. Absolutely. You know, they, they didn't have teeth. They didn't have shoes. Uh, the kids were dirty, you know, kind of. Not against anybody or anything. No, 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 of course. But, yeah. This meant everything to them. Oh, this, my, this was their it's... pinnacle of life right here. Absolutely. And, and I, I felt that. I was right beside them, elbow to elbow. And then on this side, I looked over. And God is my witness. Two ladies were sitting beside me wearing mink coats and diamond rings. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, here you got the yeah. basic folk, and then you've got rich folk, every kind of folk, every color, every appeal to every appeal to everybody, didn't it? As you say, man, that's just that's just two different. Everybody was together at that show. Oh you know, my! No matter who you are, and, and... or what political faction, or whatever. They, they, they've said they, they've said for years the fans are clamouring for us to have a big show like that, but I just don't think they could ever top it. And I think you know it, it's it's the cost of it now, and and, and times have changed. Uh, yeah. That that's that's as iconic as any WrestleMania for me. That SummerSlam, uh, you know, in my well, in we my had ninety uh, we had ninety six percent of every theme of everybody and you knew it it took them a half a day to get to the ring especially <laughs> it took them it took them like 10 to 12 15 minutes to get from the curtain to the ring yeah. it's so large and uh i just couldn't i sat there and it, it just hit me the whole thing hit me right there the people on one side the other people here and every every theme every theme every there i am at wembley stadium like the beatles you know, I, I still think about it, the grandeur of it all, and, and I, I think I must be dreaming. that This must be some kind of uh, – somebody must have slipped some acid in my drink or something. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. J JJ, I know, you've, I know you've put together, like, over 100 tracks for wrestling. Which, which ones, in your personal opinion, do you, do you hold the most fondly, maybe? Is there some that you really hold fondly? Well, I love uh, – of course, uh, Sexy Boy, without a doubt. Yeah. Sherry sang that to start with, and then they had troubles with Sherry. She wouldn't show up for the gig and so on, so they let her go. So we took Sean in, and then he put his voice on it, so it, it went from 
He's so cool. He's so sexy, too. I'm so cool. I'm so sexy. But he's one of the few wrestlers, icon wrestlers, that actually sang or rapped his own yeah. uh, interesting. Like Ted, we did, you know, I wrote Million Dollar Man. Jimmy wrote all those lyrics, you know. And uh, that's another one, you know. So very few did. But uh, it, it's just uh, the whole thing is just a, a, a lucky break, I guess. But, you know, I, I'm classically trained. Uh, I wasn't a guy. I wasn't a, there's some fabulous garage uh, musicians that are, uh, be, that are bigger than I'll ever be in my whole career. But I had training, and I... I got the opportunity, and I had to do every kind of music, as you know, genre, everything from rock, pop, country, soul, rap, you name it. And uh, having a classical background gave me that uh, ability. To do that. I, I'm going to segue now into because you told me you told me prior to the interview, you drove the Dodge Viper for Hulk Hogan's unveiling. For WCW <laughs> at D- Disney MGM Grand, how did that come about that you were driving the car for him on that? You know, it's, what an incredible day that is in in, in wrestling history. Him in coming leaving WWF, we we didn't we didn't get WCW at that point, so we we were none the wiser. No internet. Hogan was gone to me, and it was it wasn't till years later when. NWO and stuff happened then I really knew what had happened but yeah how, how was that day man the parade for Hogan coming in the unveiling oh, uh, well what it was is uh, I got a Hulk called me and said uh, McGuire I need you to drive the Viper in the comeback parade at WCW I said well sure see I, I used to buy and sell muscle cars and exotic sports cars and stuff when I lived uh, in Hollywood uh, you know I bought and sold uh, motorcycles, uh, anything with wheels on it, I bought so crazy. And he knew I was a car guy. Hope did, of course. Hope's a car guy. And so he said, McGuire, I, he said, Jimmy Hart can't drive a stick shift. I went, I know that, Hulkster. I said, I know. I've been riding up and down the highways with him since the Gentry's. He can't, he can't drive a shift. He had a '66 GTO that every time I went to Memphis, he always let me drive because he loved to just ride in the car and had me drive because I was a car guy. But I said, but it's automatic. He can't drive. I said, I knew that. He said, well, I need you. I said, okay, Hulkster, I'll be, I'll be there. So went down, and we did a, uh, a series of uh, promotional shots and stuff for the Wrestling Boot Band. Absolutely. There we are. Great, great photo that is. I've seen that on your Facebook. How cool. Such, yeah. a, such a cool photo that. And uh, so while we were doing that shot, that shot was shot at Emore City in the, the Crystal, Crystal Cathedral. It's a beautiful place. If people want to look that up and see or go visit, I recommend it. But um, anyway, so uh, got down there. So Jimmy and I drove over to Hulk's house in the automatic car that Jimmy had. He can't drive a stick shift, remember? So uh, we parked the car, and then uh, Hulk had he he went up there with uh, the wife and the kiddies in the caravan. I mean, if you want a, a really cool picture. You should see Hulk Hogan stepping out of a 1994 Grand Caravan. That's a cool picture, too. But anyway, so he went earlier with them, so he'd be prepared and get ready. And so we came a little later. So we drove up from uh, uh, Clearwater, where I picked the car up at his house. We, uh, Jimmy rode, and I drove it, the Viper. And on the way up, about halfway, had to stop and use the restroom. 
Well, we pulled off in this one stationery on this one exit. It wasn't any big deal or a town or anything. It wasn't anything up there but one service station right on the exit. Well, we pulled. I pulled around side. I figured nobody would see it there. Went in the bathroom, used the bathroom real quick, and Jimmy did too. And by the time that we came out of the bathroom, there was about 30 people around the Viper. Thinking Hulk's probably in there using the bathroom, you know. Yeah. But it was just us jabronis. <laughs> JJ, the jabronis. You don't need to. You don't need to call yourself a jabroni, JJ. Yeah. Well, we were. I mean, there we were. And uh, so, anyway, so I was scared that they're going to scratch a car or something. You know, this thing was mint condition. And uh, so I said, please, let, I said, get back from the car right now. I said it kind of, you know, like real authoritative like that. And the people, they jumped back. And I guess they thought it was Hulk, you know. I might have gone, everybody get back from the car. <laughs> and uh, so uh, they said, where's Hulkster? Where's Hulkster? I said, he's, he's up there in Orlando. Waiting for us, so you'll have to excuse us. We're on a schedule. We're in a hurry, but thank you very much. You know, like them, got it. And the people were were wanting. To, they were touching the car and trying to hang on and everything as I was pulling out. It was unbelievable. I don't know where they came from. There wasn't anybody out there when I parked it. When we weren't in there more than three minutes. <laughs> but anyway, and then so I drove it on up, and then um, you know, of course, I drove uh, Hulk in the parade, and Jimmy was running around the Viper with. Uh, Megaphone. That's right, baby. That's right. Hey, baby, it's the Hulkster. You know, doing all that stuff. And, uh, but unbelievably, I'm on the trading card. I think it's number 84 of the 94 WCW trading cards, but don't hold me that, uh, sports man. But I think that's right. But there I am driving the Viper with Hulk sitting on the back, but no Jimmy Hart because he was out of the frame. So it's one of the few pictures where you see the Hulkster, but you don't see Jimmy. You see me driving the car. And Hulk gave me a, he said, put this on, McGuire, real quick, right before we did it. A Hulkster, yellow, you know, the type of T-shirts that he would tear. Like Hulkamania. Absolutely. So that's how that went. And it was really fun. It was really great. And then we, then we proceeded to do music also for WCW. Uh, did a big string of songs for them. Uh, you know, Taskmaster, uh, Sonny Ono and them, uh, on, on, you know, and uh, so that worked out real good too. We we just had a great time, and you got to understand that when we were with WWF, it was a different era, of course, and uh, the temperament of the company and everything. Yet uh, uh, Vince and Linda ran owned the whole company. Uh, you know, if you want, I mean, I used to stand behind the curtain with Vince. And watch uh, matches through peeking through the curtain while the matches are going on, and just he and I one to one. And yeah, we I, we were watching a match one time of the Jumping Bomb Angels and the Glamour Girls, Judy Martin and Lalani Kai. That match lasted almost an hour. It went fifty minutes, five oh, and they never stopped. I mean, there wasn't any corner leaning, and you know, uh, time to adjust your belt and balance your checkbook and get a breath and then come back. I mean, this thing just was bam, 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 up and over, up and out and under, over. It never stopped, never stopped, ne never stopped, never seen anything like it. And Vince looked over at me and through the, peeking through the curtain, he said, McGuire, what do you think? What do you think about the girl? And this is what I said right to him. I said, boss, I'll be honest with you. 
before long, you're going to see the girls headline the main event, the pay-per-views, and the biggest thing that you put together. You're going to see that, boss. And he looked at me right in my eyes, just close as I'm looking to you, and he said, interesting, McGuire, interesting. And that's what he said. And then we know how that turned out. So, I'm not saying I'm the guy, but no, I sure you could we saw it. that match. And he asked me, I, I think I put something that, and, and Vince watches everything. There's never going to be anybody that knows more than Vincent K. That man, period. Nobody. I don't care who it is. And uh, the day that he goes out is the day that everybody should be on their knees and wishing that he did. Because, you know, a lot of the fans say, well, Vince is running down. you got to understand that when we were involved through it all, you didn't have a board of uh, 20 people at a big table going, no, no, we need to push so-and-so. No, we not. You know, Vince just said, here's our program, like a, like a promoter should. Absolutely. You know, and we had a direct connection, and you could go up to his office at any time and go, hey, boss, what's up? Sit down, go, well, what do you think? How do you like that new thing we did? Oh, I really like it. He never turned down anything we did. And so usually I took a limited amount of my equipment to the Coliseum when the shows were happening. And we had, I had a room in the back, you know, right next to the uh, dressing room. And uh, he would come down there and, and uh, Jimmy would go, boss, here we go. We got, the, we got this new thing for Honky. Like you were, said you needed something. Hit it, McGuire. And so, you know, I had some of it pre-recorded and I play along with some of it at the same time. And, he said, press it. We're going with it. He never turned down anything we did. JJ, you know you know when it was the four pay-per-views a year era? I'm I'm a big fan of the pay-per-view theme songs, the originals. Did you did you put them together with Jimmy and Jim Johnston as well? Those that like the uh, SummerSlam theme, WrestleMania, Survivor Series, the Rumble. Those were done. Yeah, uh, Johnston did, I think, most of those. But you have to understand, when we came in in 86, uh, like a year later or two, or one year later, he got a contract to do music for Deep Space Nine, you know, the feature music yeah. for the whole, the incidental music feature. So there's so many people, so many people coming in, you know, so fast that he, he, of course, that's where he was focusing. So that's, we just quickly kind of took over and we wound up having a majority of all the talent themes at that time, you know, for, at least a decade. You know, we had 96% of all the who's coming out at the show. You know, I watched one, of, like the NBC uh, 30, uh, NBC main event on NBC. Uh, we had every theme except for two themes on those shows. Just incredible. You know. Absolutely. It's unbelievable. Fantastic. You know, that they, they are all my, I'm not just saying it because I'm speaking to you now, they're my favourites. All them, all that, especially I started watching in 1990. JJ, incredible, incredible. And uh, there's guys who were watching it when I was watching it over here, uh, pre-attitude era. They're, they're, they're the same thinking. You know, I, I liked Stone Cold's entrance and stuff like that, but it was the older, it was the older tracks from, from, from when you were doing it with Jimmy, man. Incredible. Just perfectly. Well, we had to make, we had to make those themes fit the character. Yeah, that's what you know, I was going to I would yeah. go out. I would, I would go and watch them work. I'd see what their gimmick was. I'd see what their outfits were, what their banter was, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know, and then I, it gave me an idea of what would fit. 
And, uh, you know, it wasn't like I was a, a million miles away in a closed room. And somebody said, we got two big guys that are going to wrestle. We need a thing. No, I was all a part of I've traveled worldwide with WWF. I was right there with everybody, with everybody, Vince and everybody. Randy Savage, uh, he such a great guy. And many times he and I were, uh, took a car instead, and we rode together. He and Jimmy and myself rode together quite often. And I even uh, spent a lot of time with Randy, just he and I, uh, elbow to elbow, you know, in the car, uh, traveling, and uh, got to know Randy really well. And he was always, he always really liked me because he liked Somerset, where I'm from, because when he started out, he wrestled down here at the Armor. With uh, his dad, Angelo, had the territory here. And uh, he and Rip Rogers and all those guys, from, you know, big indie guys. I mean, it was the indies. That's who Vince uh, picked everybody up from, you know, basically. I mean, Mid-South and all that, that was just a gigantic indie promotion. It's crazy. Like, you know, I, I until years later when the internet became a thing, I didn't know, because in the UK, we didn't get the territories. But I didn't know Ted DiBiossi was, was a big star in the territories. Uh, Kurt, Kurt Hennig. You know, all Most those, people didn't. It, yeah. Most people did not know that. We, we, I didn't know. Oh, obviously, watching documentaries years later and stuff, where you find out about these guys a bit more. I just necessarily thought, right, they've come directly. They've always been here. Just what, what, a, what, what a tapestry of guys he managed to get when it went, you know, national and then global. Just to have, to have that foresight to make it international at the time. Nobody, like you say, nobody can take it away from him, can they, Vince? Well. I'd like to say this, that uh, for uh, a lot of people, they saw my name and whatever through those years. Every time you saw Jimmy's name on one of the songs, mine's there too because we did it together. But I never made much of an effort to uh, – all those guys were the spotlight and the draw. I was kind of like the Wizard of Oz. You know, I was the guy behind the curtain. And that's what uh, Vince was in those years too. He wasn't out there in an angles and flexing, wrestling and carrying on. But um, – you know, it's just uh, uh, an unbelievable thing. The whole thing is like a dream come true. Now, here's something else. Well, let me get one thing straight at a time. First of all, my grandfather, Dr. McGuire, saved the life of Strangler Ed Lewis. Uh, he was the Hulk Hogan, first Hulk Hogan. He was worldwide sensation in the uh, late uh, 1800s, you know, early 1900s. And in 1929, he was in Lexington at the Opera House Wrestling. He's world champion. And he came out, and a fan slapped him on the back, and he was chewing gum. That was kind of one of his gimmicks, too. And I haven't read much about that. I don't know that I've ever read about his gum chewing, but he did. And uh, a fan slapped him, and he got choked. And it, this wasn't part of the show or anything. This was real. And uh, my grandfather, Dr. McGuire, was a big wrestling fan, so he always had ringside seats. So... He saw what was happening, and so they got on the megaphone and said, if there's a doctor in the house, please come. Well, Granddad was right there. He jumped uh, uh, under the rope. They just had a rope in those years. Uh, that was it. And uh, he I don't know if he homicked him, whatever. He, uh, Strangler was passing out and turning blue, and Granddad got the gum out of him, and he came kind of to, and he said, you and your son, my dad, my future dad. I, you know, I wasn't born in 1929. I mean, I was, my dad was even married to my mother. Wow. And my dad was like 19 years old then. He was born in 1911. So, uh, 
Anyway, so Dad always told me this story when I was a kid, and you know, I would listen to it over and over, and I'd go, Dad, listen, the buddies are waiting for me. Can you pick up the story again later? Yeah, I didn't pay attention. I, you know, how, kid, how we are as kids, and it didn't mean anything to me. But he told me that when they went to the back, that uh, Ed Strangler Lewis told, he said, Dr. McGuire, you saved my life out there, so I, I want to repay you, pay you for that. He said, uh, uh, you name it. Choose either a brand new horse and buggy or one of those newfangled cars. And dad said, granddad said, no, I can't accept gratuities because I took Hippocratic Oath to help people as a doctor. But he said, I'll tell you what, my dad said, he looked down at him and said, lifetime ringside seats would be pretty good for me and the boy. And he strangler said, done. They never paid for another event there. And uh, so then fast forward, Decades later than I was born, and then I wound up doing all this. It kind of makes you wonder. You know, it's like a good Twilight Zone show. Abs- you know? Absolutely, the, the connection there. Like, yeah. I uh, see. Who was some of your favorites when you when you were growing up watching wrestling? Because I know you followed wrestling as as a child, as a kid. So yeah, that'd be cool. Who who was some of your favorites? Um, the first wrestler I ever saw when I was like uh, a kid, uh, I was about. 11 years old, in the summer times when I was out of school, I would go to Chicago and stay with my aunt and uncle. And they lived at 1400 Lakeshore Drive, right on the lake there. And uh, I was always excited about that. But my uncle Bob Eisenbarger was a big wrestling fan. And uh, he was a design engineer. This and one evening we went in there, WOR, uh, he said, well, it's time for my wrestling. And so I remember my Aunt Ruth brought us some pretzels, pop or whatever to drink. And we sat there, and I, I didn't, I'd never watched wrestling. I didn't, never paid any attention to it before. And all of a sudden, this wrestler comes out kind of prancing around, and it was Gorgeous George. And I was just a tiny boy, and I thought, that's the weirdest thing I've ever seen in my whole life. And Uncle Bob, he just loved it, you know, and he was excited about it. And so I looked at him, I looked at George George, the rest. I forget who the opponent was, but that was my first exposure to, um, you know, wrestling really. And then, uh, I got into it when I got back home, I started watching the regional wrestling on uh, TV, you know, uh, up here in Kentucky, uh, broadcast from Tennessee. And that's kind of where it started for me. And, and then I just started watching it a lot and, I wasn't really a super fan, but I was a fan, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. That's cool, man. You've done you've done a lot with in TV as well. I think it'd be remiss of me not to speak about what you've done, you know, outside of the of the wrestling game. We've, we've spoke about the music. Yeah, if you could tell tell the listeners and viewers about what you've done in in terms of television as well. I thought, yeah, I'd really like to know about that. How how that came sure. to be? Okay, uh, well. Pretty much after we helped came back to wrestling at WCW and whatever, uh, before that, right before that, uh, Hulk signed a deal and was an executive producer along with Burt Bonin Schwartz, who also produced the Baywatch show, to do this Thunder in Paradise TV show with Hulk as a star and Chris Lemon, Jack Lemon's son, as co-star. And Carol Alt is the, the, the sweet honey in there or whatever. And so... Uh, Jimmy called me one day and said, well, Huckster's getting ready to do, see, this is in between the two factions of WWF and WCW. And 
that he's going to do a major TV show. and They need music for it. They got some guys that have done some, but they're not happy with the music that they're giving them. So, and they don't want this show to sound just like the music that's on Baywatch. Mm -hmm. They want something different. So he said, come up with an end theme. They want an end theme. That's where it started. And I went, okay, well, I sounds to me like about the beach and water. I think we ought to have a reggae type thing. Jimmy said, great. Well, get to it. Okay, bye. So in about 10 minutes, I wrote, when the sun goes down in paradise. There you go. I didn't write the words, so I wrote the music. And so I got my car and drove down to um, Orlando uh, in Tampa, where Jimmy lived. And, uh, well, you got my wire. Okay. And I set my stuff up and played, played it. And then he sat down, took a piece of paper and went, when the sun goes down, paradise. Girls look pretty old. They look nice. Smell cocoa lotion. Yeah. Jimmy did that in about 15 minutes. We put it together. He said, tomorrow we go over and audition it for the producer. So we did. We went over and we auditioned it. They they leapt out of their seat. They sat like eight feet from us. I mean, if I'd have stuck my hand out, I'd have slapped them. They were right on us. And Jimmy, I had some of the tracks of it pre-recorded that I was playing along to, and then Jimmy sang on a mic, you know, a little PA I had. We demoed it. They were all over. They hugged us, gave us high fives, everything. They were ecstatic. Perfect, perfect. And <coughs> Greg Bonin, uh, one of the producers, he looks over and he said, McGuire, fabulous job, y'all. Fabulous, man. Greg Bonin goes, told the public, uh, the uh, producer assistant, go out there and fire that Jamaican band we've been using. Their history. They can't speak fluent English anyway. We can't communicate. They bring all their kids with them up here. They're slopping around and late for the shoot. They're, fire them right now. They're gone. And then real, it's kind of hateful when he said all that to the PA. And then, then he dropped the tone, dropped way down. He goes, McGuire? How long are you expecting to be down here in Florida? I said, well, I just came down. I brought uh, four pairs of pants and underwear and socks and figured, you know, we'd do this. And whatever turned out here, I'd go to Disney World and then I'd go home. He says, well, you better get yourself out to Target and buy a whole bunch of clothes because you are a character on the show and you're <laughs> going to be down here all summer. Here we go again. My life in heaven down, ladies and gentlemen. There it is. My yeah. life in heaven down. Absolutely. Yeah. And so that's how that went. And so I went to Target and bought extra pants and underwear. So there you go. And then they went, we wound up doing feature music for the montage segment. And, and there I was, I was a character on the show doing the music for it. But I wish my mother had to live long enough to see this. She didn't make it to see all this because and she lived to see me acting with Patrick McNee of the Avengers TV show. She would have died right then. We used to sit when in 68 when I was just a teenager. Uh, I was, uh, you know, just teen, 18, I guess I was. Yeah, 18. And every Saturday night when the Avengers TV show came on, she would make up cook, uh, little crumpet cookies and we'd have hot tea and we, we'd kind of pretend like we were English. And she loved Patrick McNee and all that. And I wish that she could have lived seen that. But, oh, well, but life goes on. Like BTS says, they've got it exactly right. So, but anyway, uh, that's that story. And uh, that was a real fun thing. Doing Thunder in Paradise was great fun. And, you know, Hulk, uh, there were a lot of different wrestlers on the show. Terry Funk, 
Yeah. Thing. Uh, you know, Brutus jumping around. Uh, yeah. We had a great time. Everything was fun. And Hulk was real cordial with us all, too. And, and uh, of course, Hulk and I got to know each other. We knew each other from when we had done the WWF music. And, uh, but kind of casually, you know, we knew each other, but just casually. But, uh, then by the time, you know, I got down there and got involved in all that, and then we did the wrestling boot band album, then, you know, Hulk and I got very close and we both like cars and we had a lot in common, you know, and we just had a great time. The whole thing was fun. That's yeah. awesome. That's so cool. You, you obviously, you spoke about how nice Macho Man was getting back into wrestling. Whichever guys, whichever guys were, were cool and you know nice. Really, everybody. Uh, people ask me that a lot on a lot of these interviews and stuff that I do. Everybody was nice to me. Uh, I never had uh, the only kind of smart aleck thing that ever came my way when we were in Vegas for. I, I can't remember. If it, I think it was a WrestleMania. It all is kind of a blur now, but we were at Caesar's Palace. You might know, remember better what that event was. WrestleMania like, 9, JJ. WrestleMania okay. 9, 1990. Yeah. I'll go with that. That sounds right. Free. Perfect. And uh, so we were in Caesars, walking through the middle of it, and a lot of the boys were standing around. Well, all of a sudden, uh, uh, what was her name? The religious, that, that lady that... Uh, it was married to Jim. What's his name? You know, he wound up being a big con and went to prison. I forget her name, but the boys all went crazy over her. She was kind of a big deal. She divorced that crook and whatever, and she's just out there on her own. And uh, Tammy Faye Baker, excuse me, her name was Tammy Faye Baker. She's tied up with uh, Jim Baker. They was a big evangelist that took everybody's money. And uh, anyway, she had been on TV some talking about how it was. They had already arrested him. He'd gone to prison, I believe. But she didn't know what all he was up to. She really didn't. And they didn't press any charges on her. But the boys ran over there, wanted to meet her. They ran over like Mark. Oh, yeah. And so uh, I went over and I said, hi, nice to meet you and whatever. And she talked to him a little bit. And then uh, Scott Hall walks up and says, hey, McGuire. And I went, hey, Scotty, what do you know, bro? He says, I want to ask you a question. He says, are you always that pale? And in front of all the boys, I said, well, yes, I usually am. And the reason that I am, Scott, is because if I had a great tan, then I'd look just like you. Oh, the boys just broke down and laughed him completely out of seat. And he stood there, he looked at me like, you know, I and I said, yeah, go ahead, take a swing, and I'll just take about, oh, 500,000 bucks of your money. Go ahead. No problem. <laughs> so, so anyway, but it's kind of odd. When he first came in to WWF, I was there the first day he came in to Rupp Arena just to look around at the show. It was just a house show, right? He was real, real humble and real nice. And, mm -hmm. Yes, thank you. But then over time, he, I think he kind of got full of himself, you know, and kind of got, uh, kind of started living the character, you know, mm. which happened. Yeah. Um, and whatever. But I never had anything against Scotty, but uh, uh, I, I sure put him in his place that day in front of the boys. and He never gave me another problem. 
but everybody, nobody made any smart remarks or anything uh, because they were, they wouldn't go out if they're, you know, they didn't want to make me mad and Jimmy mad on the music or anything because they need that for their mm -hmm. character. You know? Absolutely. And everybody was cordial and thankful to mm -hmm. us and really great. I mean, everybody was just great, really. Obviously, you know, you were at, you were at the events, like you, you were at Wembley Stadium, you were at Caesars Palace, I'm sure you were at so many more events. Which which matches when you've been at the at the shows in attendance, which matches can you remember with what you know quite a lot of fondness maybe? Which ones did you enjoy if you can maybe yeah some some matches? Well when Hulk uh, slammed Andre at the Silverdome, uh uh that that I was between the rail and the ring in the corner where the rail comes together. And if I'd been any closer, I'd have been right up there at their feet. And uh, it was so loud that even covering your ears, the crowd noise was so intense that it hurt your ears, even with your ears covered with your hand, you can imagine. And I'll never forget that. I, I had a ringing in my ears for days. I was used to standing in front of loud amplifiers my whole life, you know. It was just unbelievable, that. And then there was a show in Cleveland. It was uh, Honky and Jimmy. I can't remember who they were against, but they put Honky in a cage, and they hoisted him up in the Coliseum about 60 feet high. And then they let him down like so many feet, just a, few, just a foot or two, ever so many minutes. And... He had to get out of that cage and get to the ring and, you know, win the match or whatever within a certain time limit or he's out. Well, they dropped him down honky in that cage probably to about, I would say he was still about 20 feet high at least, maybe 25 feet. And Jimmy had a key to the lock that was on the door. And Jimmy took that key and on the first try, I still can't believe it. He took that key and threw it up and honky caught it. I mean, the odds of that are so thin. I mean, it's just, you know, it's like a just regular key for a lock on a door. And I'll be dead darned if Jimmy didn't throw that right to him. And he, was, he wasn't five feet away. He was 20 feet up or more. It was remarkable. So they had to let him all the way down then. He unlocked it, reached around, unlocked it, and got himself out and ran in the ring, took the guitar. Bong the guy, he won the match. That was, I mean, I just couldn't believe that that that, that Jimmy could throw that like that one time. You only had one chance. You know, it looked pretty stupid trying to throw it up there four or five times. <clears throat> so, those two events were, but really every event had something that was really remarkable. And uh, every time any match that you'd watch with Hulk doing was always I, there was never a dull moment in a Hulk Hogan match, in my opinion. Uh, you might have some of the haters out there say, well, that match is going so. Well, you know, people kind of got used to him as it went along. But even so, when he would win those main events and stuff, you know, it just was unbelievable. Unbelievable. The crowd, the crowd. Right. I liked it all. I liked it all. I can imagine. I, I, I can imagine. I'd be the same if I was in your shoes, you know, I I I I want to like you say you take it all just take it all in as best you can, isn't it? It's it's hard well, it, it's hard in the moment sometimes. Like when I've been at WrestleMania, 
sometimes I'm like, you know, I, maybe I didn't take it all in, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Well, there's so much going on too. And, and in those days, in those era eras, uh, everything was over the top and real colorful, you know, that, Matter of fact, this is the same jacket I have on in the picture. I thought I thought it was JJ. <laughs> awesome. And uh, so cool. somebody on the internet said they looked at one of these promotional pictures. Said some guy said, "I don't know about that shirt." And so I dove in and I said, "Hey, how are you doing? It's me, the guy with the shirt. That's not a shirt. That's a jacket." And then some <laughs> other guy that's a fan said. Yeah, and he still wears that. It shows that he does up here in Kentucky. He's still wearing that jacket. So, you know, on the special occasions like the Stewie show, I wear the legendary. I, I'm very. Jacket. I appreciate you wearing that because obviously that that promo picture. I love that promo picture when when we uh, when we first got in contact, man. It was uh, yeah. It's just that, that's. I love that. I love that era. I, I absolutely, I still adore it now. I, I watch, I watch the product. I watch the product now. Um, it, it splits, it splits opinion. You staunch wrestling fans from the eighties and nineties, late nineties, early noughties aren't. They're very much for the attitude era, which is a great time. But yeah, take me, take me back to the early nineties, JJ, as a fan, because that, that was, uh, that was some good stuff, especially what WWF were doing. Oh yeah, it was like I said. It it made it was the biggest draw. The only thing that made more money than WWF was horse racing. <laughs> WWF was bigger than basketball, football, baseball, everything. It's mad. It's mad to think that, isn't it? It's just like crazy. They came up here to, uh, of course, Rupp Arena in Lexington. It's only a hundred miles from or eighty miles from where I live here. And uh, of course, I went to every show there too. And I actually carried all the gate money. Uh, one time up to count it in the main office uh, from down below, you know. And what we did is we had Earl, we had Dave Hebner in a line. It was Dave and me and uh, Pat Patterson and the security guy that I can't remember his name. I'm sorry, but he was with WWF through the whole, you know, whole WWF era. And we had four of us. To where that if somebody was watching or whatever, they weren't. They wouldn't know which one of us would have the money on. The is a swerve, you know, to take yeah. to protect from that. And I, I was carrying over two hundred and something thousand dollars on. No, uh, well, I, I don't know yeah. why I'm saying no because that that was absolutely you were for a full arena, even even back then. But that, that's that's some money, isn't it? Us. Yeah, and wow. uh, and. Uh, uh, I mean, I watched them count it, the whole thing, you know. Went up there, they locked the door, and, I mean, it was a big deal. It was like gangster-type stuff in a way, you know, like the way the gangsters used to Yeah, absolutely. This is all the stuff I wouldn't think you would have done, <laughs> taking the money. Oh, I, taking I did the all money sorts to, of stuff. It's crazy. I thought uh, you just make the music, and then that would be it. <laughs> well, Hulk, uh, Hulk wanted to make me a wrestler when we were over in England promoting the Wrestling Boot Band album. Uh, at the hotel, Jimmy and I had to get up every morning at 5.30 to meet him at 6 down in the gym because he didn't like to work out by himself, you know, and wanted us, us with him. So he he put us on the – he said, you guys do the treadmill while I do my routine. And he put, like, five miles for Jimmy, and he put, like, seven miles for me. He said, McGuire, you're in a little better shape than Jimmy is, so I'm going to give you some more miles. Well, I used to run cross-country track. That was nothing for me. 
and Jimmy, and when he turned his back, Jimmy jacked down the amount of miles to like two miles from his. And so I, I just kept going. Hook said, wow, you got pretty good endurance. I said, well, I used to run cross country. My brothers were all runners and in sports and whatever. But yeah, he said, so then we went down. Then we went from there to the workout. We went where they had some pads on the floor and mirrors where you can see yourself. And Hulk says, uh, McGuire, he says, you know anything about wrestling? I said, yeah, Hulk, I used to wrestle in high school. Oh, really? He said, show me a little something. Okay. So I went around behind him, and I got the great Hulk Hogan in a, in a Nelson, you know. And uh, I said, well, I know some Greco, legitimate Greco uh, uh, wrestling, but, you know, uh, I'm not, you know, I, I don't know everything like y'all are doing, you know, theatrical wrestling. He said, show me something else. And so, you know, uh, got him in an arm bar and did a couple other things, and we got we locked up and did a couple things. But Hulk is so gentle. That when he would hold me and whatever, you couldn't even feel him. It's like nothing there. It's unbelievable how what a what a technician that he is. See, fans don't know this stuff. They've never been held by Hulk Hogan and no. I have. And so Hulk Jimmy was over there on the side and Hulk said, McGuire, we're gonna make you a wrestler. He was serious. Jimmy came running in and goes, no, Hulkster, we can't do that. <laughs> risk it. Because oh. if McGuire hurts his hands, we won't be able to do any more music. It can't be done. But Hulk wanted to make me a wrestler. Well, there, I said, Hulk thanks a lot, but Jimmy's right. Incredible. I'm going to leave that to the pros. You guys are already all the way there. I would be trying to climb up to that level and take a while. And I appreciate it, but I'm going to stick with what I know. I know the music, so I'm going to leave the wrestling to you guys. But I appreciate it, Hulk. Thanks. And I tell a lot of independent wrestlers that that I've worked with through the years, and they go, oh, my God, I can't believe that you didn't let him make you a wrestler. And I said, well, I, I just told you how it was. And I said, uh, who knows? I might have been the guy that actually beat Hulk Hogan. Who knows? <laughs> I doubt it. But anyway, yeah, Hulk, uh, Hulk, uh, yeah. Awesome. Hulk, see, uh, guys like that that are at the pinnacle of it all, in reality, they're all, they want to help other people. They really yeah. do. They're, they're not all, their character might be high and smug on their self, mm -hmm. you know, but in reality, they want to help people with talent because they were there one time themselves. Absolutely. We and, all started uh, somewhere. But Hulk helped me. You know, we did, he put me on the TV show, gave me a chance to do all that music. So I had nothing but great accolades for Hulk Hogan Hulk and Hulk Hulk Absolutely, JJ. If you could just talk talk about the book, that'd be that'd be fantastic. Just let the listeners and the viewers know about your book. Sure, uh, the book "My Life in Heaven Town." It's available on uh, Amazon, and uh, personalized autograph copies are available through eatsleepwrestle.com, and that's uh, John Cosper. Not to be confused with another Eat Sleep Wrestle, I believe, but. You want the one with John Cosper. Right. He's a, a known, you know, uh, wrestling author and everything. And uh, if you want a, a, an autograph copy, you can get it through him, but you can get just a general copy through Amazon and other, any, any digital media outlet has it. I think there might be even some used copies people sell here and there, whatever. It's available everywhere. So uh, the book really isn't, it's not just about wrestling. 
uh, it's about my experiences in wrestling, uh, the high spots and so forth. But it's also about my working with a lot of Hollywood's biggest icons that ever were in film and whatever, TV. When I worked at Glen Glen Sound Company in Hollywood, uh, you know, I worked with everybody from uh, Gene Simmons of Kiss to uh, Jim Garner and Bob Hope. And uh, I was actually kissed. It's a, that's in the book. I don't want to give the whole story away, but get the book and you can read it. But um, Farrah Fawcett came in to do her dialogue looping for the Burning Bed movie, the TV movie. Real popular. And she came in and she was uh, dating Ryan O'Neill at the time. And she said, he'll probably call and be a big ass and cuss everybody and tell, you know, he's a troublemaker, but we, but I'm just warning you, he'll be dialing in. Well, he did. He called in while she was working on stage five, I believe. He said, tell her to get on the phone right now. And he started cursing. And then right in the middle of it, he goes, oh, I'm sorry. He said, what's your name again? And I said, my name's John McGuire. He said, John, I don't have any right to be cursing at you. you I'm sorry. I get carried away. But I want you to tell her when she comes out uh, for a break to get home by 7 o'clock, by 6 o'clock. Okay? I, went, I sure will, Ryan. He said, again, I apologize for cursing at you. I said, oh, this is Hollywood. This, none of that phases me. I said, this is Hollywood, brother. I said, I'm used to it. No problem whatsoever. Click. Okay? So she takes a break and comes out, and she says, hi, John. I had name tag. Hi, John. Uh, you're in charge of the uh, artist relations and everything, aren't you? I went, yeah, today I am. And uh, she said, uh, do you have a coffee uh, uh, machine or what? I said, yeah, we've got a little coffee break room right around the corner. Follow me. So we talked, got it, walked around there. The room was only about eight feet by eight feet. It was real small. And had a microwave over here and whatever, and coffee thing. So I said, how would you like your coffee? And she said, uh, I'd like it black with just a touch of uh, cream in it. Okay, no sugar? No. I fixed it for started up, handed it to her. She said, could I talk to you for a minute? I went, that's my job, sure. So she went over and shut the door, you know, to the coffee room. And it was a solid door. And I went, uh-oh, I might be in, in great luck right here. I don't know what this is. So she shut the door. And she said, I wanted to talk to you about Ryan. She said, I want to apologize to you for him calling and going through all that saying all that. I said, no, don't know nothing necessary. She said, well, we just care so much about each other that we're at each, we, we, at each other's throat, so we're caring about each other too much, really. And I said, I'm sorry to hear that, but uh, she said, well, you know, I could tell that she was pretty lonely. You know, a lot of the biggest celebrities are very lonely people. You know, they can't go out and do things like you and I can do. You know, they, they're trapped like Elvis trapped in the mansion and that sort of stuff. So anyway, we talked a little longer and then as we talked a while, she took a sip of her coffee and she set it down and she got real close to me face to face and she said, John, thank you for, you're such a wonderful person for listening and I really appreciate it. And she bent over and she kissed me right on the lip. And I, I'm standing there going, too bad I've got a girlfriend waiting for me at home because I could be dating Farrah Fawcett. <laughs> if I did that, Ryan O'Neill would probably kill me. Yeah, so, that was, that was, <laughs> yeah. That was, but, uh, she's a really nice, she was a really nice, beautiful person. But like I said, being a big celebrity of that level and the most beautiful woman mm -hmm. in the world at that time. Well, then I also got to kiss on 
Carol Alt, who was a, the number one model in the world during while we were making Thunder and Paradise. And uh, at the rap party, she's real tall, and nobody wanted to dance with her because she was so tall. And she came up to me and she says, "She says, uh, JJ, she said, would you dance with me? Because I'm so tall, they're they don't want to dance with me." I'm sure. So we danced around, whatever, chit chatted. Whatever, well, before the night was over, I got a kiss from her, too. So I did pretty good. I, I got to kiss two of the most beautiful women in the world. So I guess I quit now. There's nowhere else to go. <laughs> the, la the ladies like the right you. The ladies like you, JJ. Yeah. Well, I, I don't, you can look at me. I'm not really uh, uh, the most beautiful guy in the world or whatever, but I learned something along the way. <laughs> women don't really, they're not really that concerned about looking. They're more concerned about, What's inside who you are? Yeah. It's good, bad. bad yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. JJ, where can we find you in terms of social media? That, that was going to be one to, to close sure. out. Uh, you can find me on uh, Facebook under John McGuire. Uh, you can uh, also find me on, uh, let's see, what else am I on? I'm on, a, I'm on a couple. I'm not on Twitter and all that. I don't have all that going. But primarily, Facebook, I guess, is the main thing. And then you can find out more about me also. You can just type in uh, Hurricane J.J. McGuire, music maker for WWF, WWE, WCW, and you can read all everything about me there, too, and whatever. And IMDB also has me listed. Tell you know, Brilliant. who I am and whatever. Mr. Mr. Hurricane JJ Maguire, John Maguire, thank you so much for coming on Stu's Wrestling Podcast today, man. I've really, I've really enjoyed it. So cool, just so cool. Thank you, Stewie, and yeah. uh, I appreciate you so much. And you got a great show, and you're really making big numbers, taking over the world. Uh, you're going to be as big as BTS pretty soon. <laughs> This episode is brought to you in association with Powered 4 TV. So go and check them out for anything wrestling related, old events, new events when we come out of COVID, podcasts, you name it, it's all there at Powered 4 TV. So find them across social media. Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.